Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. Welcome back to the Tech Ed Podcast. Regular listeners know that I, your host, Matt Kirkner, have a fascination with all things exploration, whether it's exploring the deepest of oceans, the tallest of mountaintops, or even exploring space, as we're going to talk about today on today's episode. I have this absolutely fascination, absolute fascination with anything related to exploration. This goes back decades and decades. I remember all the way back in the 1970s when the Viking 1 and the Viking 2 project was going on. We had an orbiter and we had a lander on the planet Mars. And as those images were being transmitted back to the planet Earth and published in our local newspaper, I even cut the pictures out, had a little scrapbook all about the Viking 1 and the Viking 2 mission. I've been fascinated by this stuff since I was a little kid. I still believe to this day that one of the greatest speeches in the history of mankind was John F. Kennedy's We Choose to Go to the Moon speech. I have visited the Space Center named in his honor, the John F. Kennedy Space Center in the state of Florida, three times in my life. In my youth, I was actually fortunate enough to see a space shuttle launch. It was from a distance from a long way away, but we saw the space shuttle go up into and through the Earth's atmosphere, and that was an amazing opportunity as well. When we think about the images coming back today from the James Webb Space Telescope, I'm sure many of our listeners have seen those images coming back over the last several weeks as we're recording this episode. They're just starting to emerge. And what an amazing world we're living in, literally looking back billions of years with a resolution that we've never seen before from the space telescope that is orbiting about a million miles away from the sun, orbiting the sun and bringing back just these absolutely amazing images. So there's something about the world of space that captures the imagination, something about it that awes the soul, something about it that elicits more questions than it brings answers. So let's explore today on the Tech Ed Podcast this fascination with space exploration and explore the careers and emerging technologies in the world of aerospace in a way that only the Tech Ed Podcast can. We're going to do that with our guest today, the Executive Director of Space Tech, a gentleman by the name of Steve Kane. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on the Tech Ed Podcast. Well, thank you. I'm honored to participate in this. It's a wonderful opportunity. And we're honored to have you. Let's start with your unique background, Steve. You, you really set you up to lead an organization like Space Tech. Uh, your experience includes experience in the U.S. Navy. Thank you, by the way, for, for your dedicated service to our nation. Working for the airlines, working with NASA's shuttle program at Kennedy Space Center. What drew you to the aerospace industry to begin with? Well, actually, I was working for an airline in California when I first discovered uh, opportunities that may be available in the aerospace industry. Uh, it was at Space Launch Complex 6, which was at Vandenberg Air Force Base. The Air Force was underway building their West Coast launch site for a space shuttle. And I actually saw an ad in the newspaper one morning and thought, looked like fun, so why not apply? And I did, and, and it took a while uh, to chug through the process, but I eventually was offered a position at Slick Six with Lockheed Space Operations Company, who had just won the contract there to uh, continue construction of that site. And 
that started my career. What an amazing beginning to the career. And thinking about today, this digital age that we're living in and and all the technology that surrounds us, that that back in that day, you actually responded to an ad in the newspaper. And we often tell the young people that listen to this podcast, you never know, taking a chance or pursuing an opportunity might take you. So many of us, myself included, are working in careers that we never imagined when we set out to plan our careers. It's just amazing where serendipity can take us into the future. In your case, responding to an ad in the newspaper and that ad leading to a really rewarding career in the world of aerospace. So specifically, tell us about the work that you got to do at the Kennedy Space Center. Are there any unique highlights of your time there that you're especially proud of? Well, actually, I was involved in a lot of different things. That, that's what was really interesting about you know, taking that position in the first place. The actual construction project at Slick 6 at Vandenberg, because of the Challenger accident, uh, that was curtailed. The Air Force decided not to pursue manned space. And so at that time, I went back to the airlines, not really thinking that I would return to aerospace. And it was fortunate that about a year and a half down the road, I received an offer from Lockheed once again to move to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And uh, I started there as an inspector, actually in the, the launch control center, working as they call them console monitor quality control inspectors. And what we did was uh, as these spacecraft were being tested and prepared for launch. We would work with the systems engineers and the launch conductors and the test conductors to ensure that all the activities were properly documented and accounted for. Uh, But that really was different than what my core skills were being an aircraft mechanic. I was a hardware guy. And so I had an opportunity to move from that position into the orbiter processing facilities, uh, first in the ground support equipment area, but then moving on to the orbiter as a, a, uh, an inspector, shuttle systems inspector is what we were called then. And that really got me uh, interested. And what it also did, and one of the, the key reasons for moving to Florida was I knew from my experience at Vandenberg that uh, Lockheed would pay for an education. And so I leveraged that in Florida and went to a, a very, very well-known aeronautical school, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, and began working on a degree. And at the time, Lockheed Space Operations and its eventual uh, follow-on United Space Alliance would promote people that had degrees to supervisory management positions. And so that was kind of my, my emphasis for doing that. But in the course of all of that, I got involved uh, not only as a shuttle systems inspector, but then I became a lead inspector. I ran a crew of inspectors in one of the processing facilities. I left that, became a quality engineer and worked in a couple of different areas as a quality engineer doing uh, corrective action. Uh, assessments. Through all of that as well, I earned my non-destructive testing level three certification, which allowed me to use a lot of really good equipment and do assessments on hardware and different things. I also was invited to join in the uh, efforts to form a Lean Six Sigma community there at the Space Center. So initially with a Green Belt project and then moving on to Black Belt as a Lean Six Sigma Black Belt. So all of those things kind of led me to, to where I am today. You know, it's interesting. You talk about Lean Six Sigma Black Belt in the world of aerospace and in the world of the uh, the, the shuttle program. I spent 23 years running manufacturing companies in, in the United States. And so many of the things that you're talking about, corrective action programs and quality systems, Lean Six Sigma, driving waste out of systems and, and decreasing variation and variability and process. It's amazing. Uh, every time we get on an episode of this podcast to talk about the commonality between various spaces within our economy and certainly the work that you did at the Kennedy Space Center overlaps in so many ways that the, uh, with the world of advanced manufacturing, but, but is also 
unique in so many special ways. So it's, it's just it's just an example of there again incredible careers that exist in STEM, incredible careers that exist in the world of technology. Uh, to your point, uh, Lockheed paying for your education. There's so many employers today that if a, a student has uh, an interest, if they have a willingness to work and a willingness to learn, you can start almost anywhere in a company, and that company, in many cases, will will help you further your education and enable you to grow in so many different ways. So, so great examples there. I want to talk for just a moment then about the end of the shuttle program. When the program, the shuttle program was retired, I've got to believe that that had a pretty significant impact on the economy. Tell us about the impact on the industrial economy, on the manufacturing economy that resulted from the retirement of the shuttle program. Well, it was pretty significant. You know, as you know, in 2005, it was announced that the shuttle would be uh, retired in 2010 was the original target date. It actually went to 2011, but roughly 20% of the tax base in the in Brevard County area was involved with shuttle operations or shuttle in one form or another. And so it was a pretty significant hit. Uh, we saw neighborhoods, you know, throughout our, our area that we live in, in Titusville, for example, uh, the term zombie houses was pretty common. You know, a lot of people just walked away from these because, you know, there was no work and, and so families moved out of the area. And so there was a pretty significant impact, but it did something else too, which was kind of, I, I think, a concerted effort between Space Florida, which is a, a very, very good organization run by the state of Florida to attract uh, businesses to the area and also the Economic Development Commission of the Space Coast. Uh, Linda Weatherman and her team worked really, really hard to attract business into this area, uh, leveraging what had been built for shuttle and moving it kind of to the next stage, if you will, or the next chapter, and that was manufacturing. Uh, typically in the past, everything that was done here was of an operations nature. There wasn't a lot of manufacturing other than some of the advanced manufacturing that was DOD related, you know, in armament in some other areas, most of it was operations for NASA. But with the emergence of commercial space and really what the space shuttle and the orbiters showed how to build and, and work in space, uh, that led to kind of a, a surgence of manufacturing in the area and typically advanced manufacturing because spacecraft are a little bit different than, than typical manufacturing efforts. So that's really what we've seen emerge now. And that's was kind of what resulted from that decision to, to retire the shuttle. You know, it's hard for me to believe that the, the shuttle program sunsetted in 2011. Wow, that's 11 years ago. And it, it doesn't seem that long. It, it just shows how, how quickly time can fly. Uh, but during that time, it sounds like, you know, necessity being the mother of all invention that the organizations that had supported the space program and the space shuttle program for so long found new ways to take the technologies and take the competencies that existed in that workforce and I'm sure the work ethic that existed in that workforce and put them to new to new uses in the world of advanced manufacturing. We're going to talk quite a bit about manufacturing and the convergence of the space program and advanced manufacturing. But before we get to that, Steve, I want you to tell us a little bit about space tech, uh, about your organization. What is its purpose? Where does your funding come from? What programs and services are you providing to your learners? Well, Space Tech, it began life as a National Science Foundation center, a national center. Uh, so its initial programs were created to build the curriculum to train aerospace workers, specifically in the spacecraft industries. And uh, through that effort, uh, it ran through several cycles that the National Science Foundation supports 
and their advanced technological education programs as a center of excellence initially, and then moving to a resource center. You know, that was about 16 years of funding. I joined in, in 2011, so they had been in, in underway since 2002. And Space Tech was created by a gentleman by the name of Dr. Al Kohler, who has a long, deep history in aerospace, beginning as early as working with Warner Von Braun on the uh, Army Ballistic Missile Program, and then moving uh, after 30 years at NASA, moving to education. He was campus president here locally uh, for what was then Brevard Community College, now Eastern Florida State College, and then invited to come in and help build the Center of Excellence through the National Science Foundation grant, which he did. And I was fortunate to come to the program in the mid-2000s as an instructor in the aerospace program, which was kind of, I shared duties with the United Space Alliance and what I did there. And in the weekends and evenings, I taught at the uh, at Space Tech's programs. And through that relationship, when Dr. Kohler was ready to move on, he asked me if I'd like to join the team. And so in 2011, when I looked at what was occurring, you know, it looked to me like there were a lot of opportunities to come to Space Tech and, and kind of help uh, move this program along, which I, I ultimately did. What an interesting way to take this experience that you have in, as an inspector that you, have, that you had in the, the quality world uh, that you had um, with your knowledge of technology. Just to kind of continue on this theme, there again, from answering an ad in the newspaper, who knows how long ago, to now becoming the executive director of Space Tech, you've had quite a career transition and quite a career pathway that I think is really interesting. I want to talk now about some of the technologies and about the technicians that work on spacecraft. Again, a lot of our listeners are folks working in technical education, maybe working for a, um, a technical college, maybe they're a teacher. In some cases, in many cases, they're a student. But there are technicians that work on aircraft and on spacecraft and in advanced manufacturing. And in so many ways, the, the competencies and the knowledge base for these positions have a tremendous amount of similarity. So where do you see the overlap in skills for technicians and maybe the electromechanical technology, automation technology, that may be a little bit more common in some of our technical and community colleges and other educational institutions? Where do you see the overlap between that and individuals working on spacecraft and aircraft? Well, I think, you know, when you think about the term mechatronics, uh, mechatronics is mechanical, it's electrical, it's pneumatics, it's hydraulics. But when you talk about that term, you're also describing an aircraft mechanic because they work on all those systems as well. And when you think about that in terms of working on those systems, the spacecraft is not a significant difference as well. So that same skill set is applicable across those. And we all know that mechatronics is key now in automated manufacturing and diagnosing and repairing faults in these automated assembly processes. So really, all three of those skill sets are, are heavily related. Absolutely. And we use the term mechatronics all the time here. And we talk a lot about Industry 4.0. And no doubt, a lot of the technologies that exist in the world of Industry 4.0, smart technology, smart sensors, in many cases, got their start, I would believe, in the, in the world of spacecraft and the world of aircraft. So lots and lots of commonalities between advanced manufacturing and the world of aerospace. How about some of the areas that are different? What would an aerospace technician be faced with that maybe an electromechanical technician, industrial maintenance technician might not see at, in the normal course of doing their job? Well, and in aerospace, there's a couple of different, uh, I guess, occupations, different pathways. On the aerospace side, it's more related to manufacturing. So manufacturing with sometimes exotic materials, uh, whether it be titanium, other alloys, aluminum alloys and composites, for example. 
So really those processes that create hardware. And then uh, there's also the operations side of aerospace and where spacecraft come into play where those things are integrated and tested uh, and they're launched and in some cases recovered as we see now with uh, the resurgence of the recovery of, of these spacecraft. So the skill set's a little bit different. And I think when you start looking at the spacecraft world, really where it diverges is with the things like propellants, for example. Uh, it's a lot of the workspaces. It's a lot of the things that are done to prepare these vehicles for launch. So that's really where it starts to diverge. And it's interesting too, we've done a lot of work through space tech in areas now. Uh, there are, I believe, 14 licensed spaceports across the country. And in some of these areas, they don't have traditional aerospace programs. And so we've been able to take a lot of what we've created for the operations world here at the Kennedy Space Center, Marshall Space Flight Center, and others to develop programs, for example, in New Orleans, in Midland, Texas, where you wouldn't think of a spaceport being located, but there are space operations going on. And so really what, what our role is, is to kind of take what we know about this world and help build those programs in those areas. You're right. I would not think of New Orleans or Midland, Texas as being as being bastions for, for space technology, but it sounds like uh, these types of technologies can be taught just about anywhere and be put to use just about anywhere in large part through the, the work of space tech and through your efforts, Steve. And now I want to talk about how do we take these, these technicians that are working in the world of aerospace and, and how do we validate their competencies and how do we certify, if you will, that they have certain competencies. I, I happen to be uh, in a series of meetings last week that took place perhaps by coincidence in Key West, Florida, and that's, that's where I spent the latter end of last week meeting with a, a number of thought leaders in the world of technical education. And, and one of the things that was talked about at that meeting was just the increasing role that third-party certifications are playing in the world of education. They've been around for a long time, but I think that educators and more important employers are starting to wake up to the huge value that certifications they, that certifications have in the world of training and in the world of determining whether or not an individual has certain abilities and competencies and skills that they say that they have. So, you know, we at the Tech Ed Podcast and our listeners know we see tremendous value in performance-based industry-recognized certifications. Do you agree that these are, are becoming more and more important and that they have a big role in the world of, of education and employment? And, and if so, why do you think certifications are so important for aerospace technicians in particular? Well, because Space Tech is an internationally accredited certification agency, you know, we've done a lot of work in the area of especially performance-based certifications because that's not the norm. Uh, the norm in industry is an online written test you know, that basically tests knowledge. It doesn't really test the ability to, to do. And, and that's really where we focus. You know, having our programs come out of the NASA world, essentially, where uh, when you launch a spacecraft, and you're launching it out to geosynchronous orbit, for example, and it's going out 22,000 miles, you can't go fix it if something goes wrong. It's, it's a one-shot deal. So you wanna make sure that the processes that you use that create that are valid and consistent and reliable. And, and so taking that thought process and the way that I was able to go through these processes, you know, through the NASA programs and kind of help bring that same methodology into space tech, you know, when we do certifications, we focus on the performance aspect as well. It's not just about building a knowledge test and having a person, you know, achieve a passing score. It's about also taking those same competencies and looking at the ones that require a demonstration of performance and ensuring that you can test those skills adequately. So, for example, with the Certified Aerospace Technician Program that we administer, 
there are 12 practical tasks that this individual is going to have to demonstrate. They're going to have to demonstrate the ability to drill a hole and tap that hole and install it faster and torque that faster properly and then install safety wire on that faster. They're going to have to demonstrate the ability to troubleshoot an electronic circuit with a digital multimeter. Uh, they're going to have to understand how to do a safety assessment in a work area. Uh, they're going to have to also demonstrate their understanding of systems within you know, the aerospace industry. So there's a lot of things that, that we administer performance-based testing on. And again, that all comes to uh, just demonstrating that individual is capable. And in the aerospace world, especially, you know, because of, of the, the high value of this equipment, it's important that employers have some sort of a uh, recognition that the individual can do what it is that, that they're hiring them to do. You know, when I think about uh, just the price of failure in different types of jobs, and one of the things that I talk about when it comes to advanced manufacturing, Steve, is that the scariest day in the life of an industrial engineer is the day when you implement a new process or you install a new piece of equipment or you change the process and you don't know for sure if it's going to work or not. You think that it is, but but there are no guarantees in life. And then and then you turn the switch and start the process, and that's kind of the moment of truth when you know whether or not all that important work that you put into that particular project is going to pay off or not. If it does, you're a superstar, and if not, you're the one that shut the line down or shut your customer down or what have you. Um, at least in the world of advanced manufacturing, where I spent my entire career, uh, if it doesn't work, there's always a second chance, right? I mean, we can always go back tomorrow and fix something that's wrong. To your point, when you have something, did you say 20,000 miles away? Uh, once it's out there, it's out there. And, uh, and the ability to go out and, and make a change to that uh, is extremely, extremely limited. So the price of failure really high, and, and therefore the price of making sure that somebody has uh, the competencies. And then as you put it, the performance ability as well, being able to do things hand, hands-on and, and not just what you know, but what you do really important in the world of aerospace. And so it speaks to the importance of third-party certification in that space as well. Well, this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast with Steve Kane of Space Tech is part of our partnership with the National Center for Autonomous Technologies and their experience STEAM event that is taking place this summer. I know Steve Kane and Space Tech are gonna be there. Let me tell you a little bit about this great event. The US Bureau of Labor Statistics projects that more than 1 million STEAM jobs will have been added by the year 2030. Meanwhile, in 2022, the national shortfall of highly skilled technical workers hit 3.4 million. In an effort to increase awareness and provide opportunities, including educational and career pathways to K-12 youth and their families, the National Center for Autonomous Technologies, along with the National Science Foundation Advanced Technological Education Program and Minnesota State Colleges and Universities, will host Experience STEAM at the Mall of America, August 10th through 14th of this year. If you have never been to the Mall of America, and I've been there many times, it is awesome. Utilizing nearly every single inch of common area space inside and outside, the 5.6 million square foot retail and entertainment destination, the week-long event will feature a spectrum of STEAM opportunities for attendees, regardless of age, academic background, or social constraints including experiential learning activity booths, professional development workshops, student camps, robotic competitions, advanced skills training, and more. Attendees will be presented with the experience and then provided direct educational pathway from secondary school through two-year technical colleges, all the way to sustainable and exciting technical STEAM careers. Organizations from across the United States will be joining forces 
to provide hands-on learning experience in agriculture, autonomy, and transportation, biotechnology, chemistry, engineering, information technology, cybersecurity, manufacturing, and general education. All aspects of the event will be at no cost and open to the public. To learn more and to pre-register for specific workshops and camps, visit ncatech.org slash experience steam. That is ncatech.org slash experience steam, S-T-E-A-M. Hope to see you there. Steve Kane, the executive director of Space Tech, our guest on this episode of the Tech Ed podcast. Now, Steve, I know you've done a lot of work in the world of apprenticeships, and we talk quite a bit about apprenticeships as well here on the Tech Ed podcast, a great pathway to a rewarding career in so many different endeavors. Uh, What are some of the focus areas, though, for aerospace apprenticeships particularly? How do you include industrial and college partners in, in apprenticeships? Talk about the role of apprenticeships in aerospace. Well, it's relatively new. Aerospace hasn't typically been supported by apprenticeships in the past, uh, unless it's on the manufacturing side. Some of the uh, trade unions, for example, have apprenticeships. IAM is one, uh, and those support some of the aerospace manufacturing sites. But the operations world of uh, spacecraft manufacturing hasn't really seen apprenticeships. And one of the things that was concerned here locally in the Space Coast region, when shuttle was retired and a lot of the, the local, uh, I guess, technician base left was the availability of skilled labor. And so these companies that were coming in and that were emerging here looked at what the programs were that were available, the numbers of technicians that would be required to do this work, and then what we could do to kind of build a talent pipeline, if you will. And so that's really where this came from. I was fortunate to meet a gentleman by the name of Brian Can. Uh, who is the founder of the Space Coast Consortium Apprenticeship Program. And Brian stopped in my office for a meeting one day and laid out this scenario uh, of what these companies were looking to do. And these are European companies. For example, OneWeb Satellites is one. Uh, It's it's a joint venture with Airbus. They're they're actually owned by Airbus now. Another one was Ruag Space, uh, which is now uh, Beyond Gravity. They've changed the company name as well. But these were two companies that were, were locating here. Brian was kind of their site selection consultant that helped them get here. And these are companies that he had relationships with in Germany that had the technology that was necessary to train people for doing this kind of work. So he kind of laid out the scenario where in the U.S. we typically don't do this, but in Europe they do. So the model in Europe was a real good model to follow. Why don't we try to incorporate that here? Uh, we were fortunate to be able to work with subject matter experts, build the frameworks, present those frameworks to the state of Florida. And we focused in the three key areas. There were 85 or 86 different areas that were identified as far as occupations, which were important in this region. But we picked the top three to begin the program with, and those were mechatronics technician. They were advanced machining, which was advanced DNC, CNC machining, and also uh, composite technician or fiber composites technician. And so we built those frameworks. We submitted it to the state. And we're now in the process of building those technician cohorts. Our first cohort we started in 2019, that was the mechatronics cohort. And these were were individuals that were being trained to support the automated manufacturing processes that have kind of replaced, you know, traditional satellite manufacturing was done in a lab. Generally took a couple of years to build one of these large monolithic spacecraft. 
you know, when they were ready to launch, they brought them to the, the processing facilities and launched them. Well, that's changed pretty significantly now. And, and there's a trend to much smaller, lighter spacecraft and larger numbers of those. And that's really what Airbus OneWeb Satellites does. And Ruag Space was the company that was building a lot of the support structure for those satellites. And so these automated satellite manufacturing processes required that mechatronic skill set. So that was the first cohort that we built. And we ended up graduating six you know, over the course of two and a half years. It takes a lot of commitment and dedication. But those six that graduated now have uh, careers in aerospace. They're all journey level uh, aerospace workers. Four of them started out right from high school. Uh, two of them came in from other areas. One actually came out of Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. Uh, couldn't find work as an electrical engineer and elected to plug into our apprenticeship program. And he's now working with Airbus OneWeb Satellites as a dream level aerospace worker. Another one came out of the uh, a, a local community college in Orlando area that had a mechatronics training program who came into our program as well uh, and is now working for SpaceX. The other five are working for Airbus OneWeb Satellites. So there's a lot of opportunity available to them to go through the program. The other two cohorts we're in the process of forming now, we're actually three. One is the next mechatronics cohort, and that'll kick off in August. And then we're also forming the advanced machining and the fiber composites cohorts. First fiber composite, second machining. We have eight machinists right now, or nine machinists that are going through that cohort, which actually initiated in May of 2021. And it will end in probably December, 2023. So that's really what's going on with aerospace locally as far as apprenticeships, but we feel that this is a model that could be used elsewhere as well. And so we're in discussions in other areas that see kind of a potential, you know, for having this kind of a pipeline developed. We also have pre-apprenticeship programs that we've established. One is with Brevard Public Schools Adult Ed, for example. And uh, for a pre-apprenticeship to be registered in the state, they have to be sponsored by an apprenticeship, which we did. We sponsored the Brevard Adult Ed pre-apprenticeship. And they're doing a lot of the pre-work, especially for our advanced machining, because advanced machining involves some programming as well, because they're not only learning how to cut and file and shape metal with hand tools, they're also learning how to pro program CNC machines and create hardware that way. So SolidWorks is kind of a key, and Brevard Public Schools Adult Ed is teaching the SolidWorks portion. When they finish that, they come into the apprenticeship with kind of advanced standing. They've already accomplished some of the work that's necessary. So that's kind of a... a I guess a, a snapshot of what this partnership looks like in creating this pipeline. We have a long way to go. We're in our infancy, but we feel like we've got a pretty good start now and we're starting to see some interest develop. So it, it's really, it's key that the employers get on board and it's key that the parents recognize what the opportunities are for, for their children to move into these, these high paying careers. And the truth is that success breeds success, does it not? And so you, as you have these, these first six individuals going into what I have to believe are, are, are relatively, if not very high paying roles in the world of, of aeronautics manufacturing. You think about these technologies, uh, mechatronics, advanced machining, and in composites. I mean, just the role that materials are playing uh, across every single spectrum within our economy. Uh, these are the careers of the future. You're preparing people for the types of careers that are going to be not just family supporting and sustaining, but, but can over time build tremendous wealth for people who are going through it. And that apprenticeship role, as you say, taking some best practices from Germany, taking some best practices from Europe, putting them to work here in the United States. That's what growth and evolution in markets is all about. Uh, speaking of, of growth and evolution, you've touched on a little bit some of the growth that your organization has experienced 
um, or over the, the past year, Steve. But I want to dig into that a little bit deeper. You know, tell us about the current reach. Again, you touched on this earlier, but I want to go a little deeper. How many initiatives do you have going? How many partner colleges and so on? Uh, well, we've got several initiatives underway across the country. Actually, most of our work has been outside of Florida in the past until we really became involved with the apprenticeship here. And it, it's interesting in that way, but the military is probably our number one customer. And so we do a lot of independent third-party testing for the military as they complete their advanced individual training, as they complete their advanced technical training. It depends on the branch of the service, you know, really what they call it. But there was a push in the military the last few years to attach industry certifications with their skills training in hopes that that would help prepare that individual if they separated from the military to move into a good career. And we've been fortunate to be able to plug into that movement. And a lot of this, because we're performance-based, a lot of those certifications we deliver are funded through the military. So we've also established a partnership with a standards organization, ASTM International, which they're fairly well-known in, in, in industry, but probably not outside of industry, but they're one of the world's oldest standards organizations. They've been around since the, the 1890s. And they produce standards for virtually everything that we touch, everything that we use. And a few years ago, they picked up a certification program from another ATE grant that uh, had moved. They had lost a lot of their key people. They were unable to continue. So they sold all the rights to this to ASTM International. But as a standards organization, they really couldn't uh, certify people like they did materials and products. And so they asked us to, to assist them with this program. We've taken over a lot of that. And now we've, we've done a lot, in, especially in aviation, because aviation is changing as well. So we've been able to take a lot of the me methodology we used in the aerospace world and move into aviation and do a lot of the credentialing efforts for ASTM International in that arena. And this has also allowed us now to move globally. Uh, we're, we've got several initiatives going on, a lot of testing sites that we develop to deliver the certifications that we produce are done at military bases all around the world, but we're also now working in other countries, helping those countries develop training programs and ultimately certification programs that will help them get in, for example, the range of, of unmanned aircraft and other technological areas that they may not have that capability. So, so this has kind of been the focus of our work as well. I guess the word's getting out that these capabilities exist and so, uh, these different companies are coming to us now looking for help in producing these programs. So from fairly basic roots, now a global reach for space tech. You, you talk about some things that are, are actually really important to me. Uh, you know, and one of them is just creating opportunities for people as they, as they exit their military service and enter civilian life. I'm very familiar, by the way, with ASTM. In fact, I think I still have dreams about ASTM B117, which is the corrosion resistance standard for uh, salt spray testing in, in the world of uh, manufacturing, in my case, and certainly in, in some cases in aerospace as well. It's a great organization, and for you to be partnered with, with them and supporting their efforts uh, just, I think, speaks to the credibility of your organization and the great work that you're doing. Let's talk now about inspiring young people toward careers. You talked about the importance of changing the perspective that parents might have or the or the uh, paradigm that they might have about certain career pathways. Uh, you and I agree that that's something really important. We have to change the hearts of parents. And my belief is that you change the hearts of parents by changing the hearts of their children. Everybody wants their children to have a, a rewarding career, a happy career. I always said as my 
kids were growing up and, and launching them into whatever their pathways were, there were two things that I wanted. The first one was that I wanted them to get into a career that was rewarding, uh, that made them happy, that they felt like they had a purpose, that they enjoyed going to work. And the second thing was I wanted to make sure they had a career that kept them from living in my basement after they were done with their education pathway. Those are the two criteria. But when we talk about, especially K-12 STEM students, as they consider their future pathways, what kind of work is Space Tech doing inspiring K-12 students and STEM students toward careers as aerospace technicians? One of the programs that was created as part of the Space Tech grant was a program called Schools to Space. And that's a K-12 program. The ATE program at NSF primarily focused on grades 7 through 12. But we've expanded a little bit beyond that. And we actually partnered with a, a friend of mine. His name is Greg Cecil. Uh, Greg was an educator. He was actually a shuttle technician before he became a science teacher. And uh, as the shuttle program wound down, he moved back into education, became a science teacher in the, the uh, Tampa Bay area. And through the course of that, uh, he discovered several things and he also wrote a book. But what was really significant about his work and what really attracted what he was doing to Space Tech was a program called Classroom at the Edge of Space. And Classroom at the Edge of Space is a low cost program to get kids excited about science and the scientific method. And so he devised this program. He ran it several different times. He came to work for Space Tech and we actually did some train the trainer uh, in different areas around the country here in Florida, in Georgia, you know, to, to train educators on how they could teach space. And in this, you know, students build experiments, they put them in cubes, they put these cubes on a platform, they fly them to the edge of space on a high altitude balloon. But it's a really low cost program that any school can get involved in for just a few hundred dollars. And so that's really what we proliferated, you know, through that the schools to space program. It's on our website. It has a lot of resources for educators. You know, if you're a teacher and you, you want to assign a project, you can actually pull in information from that site. Uh, or if you're a student and your teacher is assigned you some research, you can go to that site and you can find links to different uh, topics, uh, links to a lot of the NASA sites that might have information that you're looking for. So that, that was really a resource to do that. But we're also improving our social media presence and trying to get in front of those kids at the different age levels that, that we want to target, you know, to, to get them excited about these kind of careers. Because you're right, it's really about having that child find their passion. What are they really interested in? What do they want to do? They like working with their hands. They like to create. Uh, do they like working with materials? Are they into manufacturing? Do they like programming? Are computers really what they're excited about? And all of these different occupations, these different skill sets are necessary in advanced manufacturing, aerospace and aviation, and a lot of these other uh, occupations now that we are so shorthanded as far as the people that are available to work in those areas. So that's really what our mission is now is get these students excited about coming to this, maybe get their in front of their parents so their parents can recognize that these are extremely lucrative careers. Uh, these people, you know, they earn really well you know, when they move into these. And you know, the opportunities are there. You know, in the Space Coast alone in this region, we need tens of thousands of technicians to staff these different programs that are developing. So the opportunities are there. It's just a matter of getting them involved and then getting the employers to recognize, you know, what's necessary for those individuals to come into their programs. So having the employers involved, having the parents involved, reaching the students where they are, improving a social media presence, and obviously finding students 
uh, where they're learning and finding students in the way that they're learning. I love the whole idea of the classroom at the edge of space. Your, your friend, Greg Cecil, I can tell you, I had some really cool science and STEM teachers when I was going through my education pathway. But to be able to say that I'm a science teacher now, but I used to be a space shuttle technician, I mean, that, that is a really, really cool background for a science teacher. And I'm sure uh, Greg and so many others are inspiring young people toward these careers. You know, we talk a lot about um, the fact that, you know, your interest and experiences in middle school and high school, it has been proven beyond a doubt, are the number one influencer of a young person's career pathway. And if we can give them these types of experiences, not that every student that goes to the classroom at the edge of space becomes an aeronautics technician, um, but at least they know that's a career that they could have. At least they're inspired, some of them, toward a career like that. And that's exactly how we reach them and put them on a pathway toward what you call extremely lucrative careers. And no doubt they are. And they're also careers working with just fascinating and amazing technology and not just the technology of today, but to be a part of the evolution of the technology of tomorrow. I know that spacecraft technology is advancing along with it. The way that we design and manufacture spacecraft has to be advancing as well. Tell us about some of the technological changes you're seeing, Steve, in the world of aviation and the world of aeronautics and how they will impact the need for a skilled workforce in the future. Well, I think we're seeing a lot of automation come into play. You know, automation is, I, I guess, one of the means for solving the skilled labor gap that we have, but it also opens a lot of opportunities for individuals that have these particular skills in mechatronics and, and, and other areas. And so that, I think that's the key that I see. You know, one of the, the occupations that I taught when I was teaching at Eastern Florida State College is it was in composites and sheet metal. And in composites, especially, it's traditionally been a hands-on process where you, you create by hand these materials. Uh, you put them in molds, you, know, you lay it up, you put it in molds, you either cure it by heat and pressure or you cure it by just heat alone. But it was always a hands-on process. Well, this is all being automated now. Uh, in fact, Blue Origin here in Florida is creating the largest payload fairing that's ever been created for the new Glenn spacecraft. And it uses a process called automated tape layup which is really a marriage of what you would think of as a CNC machinist and a composite technician. So uh, a lot of programming is involved, the ability to operate these, these large machines that do this automated tape layup at all the different or orientations that are necessary. So that's really what's changing in the areas of aerospace manufacturing is really automating these processes to the extent it's feasible and the technology is available to do. And that technology will become increasingly available as time goes on. Uh, it is just amazing to me how quickly um, manufacturing technology is advancing. I was just being interviewed yesterday about the IMTS show coming up here this fall in Chicago, the International Manufacturing Technology Show. And one of the questions that the interviewer had, had posed to me, we were being interviewed, by the way, because the Tech Ed podcast is going to be the official podcast of the Education Summit at IMTS this year. We're so excited about that. But one of the questions the interview had asked was, you know, what are you most excited about for IMTS? And my answer was, you know, you used to go to manufacturing shows and I've been going to them for 20 or 30 years, maybe even more. And not much changed from year to year. You could go in, you know, one year and then two years later, you went back and you saw a lot of the same stuff. It's, a, it's incredible. I can go to a show one year and go back a year later and it's all this new technology that's advancing. And if there's one message I want to make sure our young people are hearing uh, in your world, you know, the world of aerospace and aeronautics. Uh, Steve, technology advancing so quickly, both on the automation side and on the material side, a really, really exciting place to be as that world 
continues to change. So speaking of changes in the world in which you live in, you know, aerospace as an industry is really, really changing in the last decade. We have organizations like SpaceX and Elon Musk and the work that he's doing. You already mentioned Blue Origin and Jeff Bezos and his team. Uh, Richard Branson and, and Virgin Galactic are emerging as, as major new players. You know, we've got all of this private investment in the world of aerospace. What do you think the aerospace industry is going to look like 15 years from now? Are we going to merge away from or maybe um, find our way away from um, you know, government being the key catalyst for space exploration and development into uh, the world of private industry with commercialized names like the ones that we just mentioned? What do you see coming? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, Really, what I see that has evolved already is when NASA retired the space shuttle and kind of pulled out of that arena and they went to the SLS program, uh, the reason a lot of that occurred was because they just didn't have the resources to operate that expensive program and, and then go off in these core areas of exploration that NASA is, that's their, their core strengths. So private companies, the commercial space industry has emerged that is going to kind of fill the role that NASA played, you know, when we built the International Space Station, and that was how we learned to get hardware into space, how to work in space, how to live in space. And that's kind of laid, I guess, the, the baseline for what's going to occur going forward. And when you talk about Gateway, you talk about the Artemis project, uh, what's going to go on with developing habitation on the moon, uh, eventually going to Mars, you know, the groundwork has been laid. And so what I see going forward is building these up, and we can actually even relate it back to the early days of aviation when, you know, coming out of uh, World War I, we had mail planes, uh, we had visionaries like Bill Boeing and William McDonald that decided that they could stretch these aircraft and put seats in and put people in those seats and fly them around uh, much faster than they could drive. Uh, we're seeing that same evolution now in commercial space where we're testing now the limits of that when we look at suborbital flights that Blue Origin's doing, that uh, SpaceX started with their Grasshopper, now they're moving on to Starship, what Richard Branson's done with Virgin Galactic. Those are all important steps to get to where we need to get to as far as having regular access to space. And I see Gateway building that capability at the moon. And I think by the time my grandchildren are adults, uh, they're going to see a pretty common trip that's going to go from a gateway to the lunar surface to do work on the lunar surface, just like we're seeing people now begin to travel from the Earth to the space station and, and be able to do work on orbit. So that's really where I see it moving. So all the vehicles to get us there are what are under development now, and, and these technological changes accelerate. And so I, I think we're going to see more and more of that as it moves into those transportation systems that are going to get the hardware and the people up there to do that kind of work beyond Earth. No question. The, the exponential economy, as we call it, where products and technologies double in price performance every 12 to 18 months alive and well, and in many cases being driven by the world of aerospace. So, so quick question for you. If we have a community on the moon in your lifetime, Steve, and they give you the opportunity to live on it, are you in? I'm in, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you and me both. We may be neighbors. I've had a wonderful career in space, and, and and it would continue. I don't know if my wife would be agreeable, but yeah, well, I'll, I'll come be your roommate. How's that? We can right. we can go together, and our wives can remain back here on Earth. I I would be I would be all in as well. You know, we can video conference. So right, exactly. Yeah, you think about the concept of remote work. You know, you don't you don't necessarily think about it being on a you know on another planet or on the moon. But I, but I agree with you. I think that's coming, and and I think it'll happen in our lifetimes, and it's going to be 
it's going to be fascinating to watch. Uh, you have such an interesting perspective, Steve, on all of these different technologies, your experience in manufacturing, your knowledge, obviously, of the aerospace industry, of, of creating the next generation of technicians, of inspiring that next generation of, of technicians. So really appreciate your perspectives as we've gone through our discussion here today. I do have one final question for you, and it's a question we ask of every single guest that joins us here on the Tech Ed Podcast, and that is this. If you had one piece of advice to offer to a high school sophomore as they consider their future pathway, what is that piece of advice? Well, I think it's important that they recognize what it is that they, they like to do and what's their passion. And then find a way to translate that into a skill where they can earn a living. Because I think we've seen over the last couple of decades what if a person makes a decision and goes to a university, for example, and takes on enormous debt in earning a degree that may or may not be useful to them, that's really not what, what the pathway should be. The pathway should be, you know, learn a skill, be able to take care of yourself first. Education can always follow, but first be able to take care of yourself. Absolutely. Find a skill and, and most important, if you can, find it in an area of, of what you like to do, but make sure that there is a convergence between your interest and your passion and your ability to support yourself and to be a supportive member of the community, at least from an economic standpoint. Great, great advice, Steve, for the high school sophomore. Uh, and it's right in line with the great conversation that we've had here today on the Tech Ed Podcast. Appreciate you coming on and joining us. We've had just a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for being here. All right. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.